As part of the lead-up to the Australian Capital Territory General Election 2020, Behind the Lines is hosting a series of interviews featuring party candidates to discuss their policies and platforms with the theme for conversation of motivations and vision. This morning, we would like to welcome in studio to chat about building a better normal and what Canberra would look like, Minister Shane Rattenbury, ACT Greens member for Currajong, and Joe Clay, author of The Carbon Diet, activist, entrepreneur, and ACT Greens lead candidate for Gin and Dara. So welcome to the show, Shane and Joe. Good morning. Yeah. You're welcome. So one of the things we hear a lot about politics these days is the human element seems to have been getting lost. You know, we're seeing more and more decisions made that really aren't based in empathy and, and people aren't connecting to a lot of those decisions. So we wanted to do this series of um, interviews to help people connect back to the people who are going to be representing them and get to know them as human beings as well as leaders. So a little bit of background on you both. Um, have either of you filled out a, a CAPAD statement at all, Canberra Alliance of Participatory Democracy? Is that something that's crossed your path? Uh, that is, we've actually I've lodged a CAPAD statement already. Um, and that was a really interesting process. It's always good to explain who you are and why you are. And our regular listeners will remember we had uh, Dr Peter Tate from CAPAD on the show a couple of weeks ago um, talking about that process of um, helping people connect back to their potential leaders. Um, also, we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit of background about who you are as a person rather than getting into the politics right away. So I know, Shane, you're a long-term Canberra resident, not not born in Canberra, but here for over 30 years. Yeah, I grew up down in Batemans Bay, actually. And, oh, wow. Uh, it was a great, an idyllic place to have a childhood, really. Yeah. You know, just able to roam the countryside with that r simple rule that you had to be home by sunset mm -hmm. before the sun went behind the hill out the yeah. back of our house. Yeah. And uh, But I came up to Canberra to start high school. So we were lucky to win a scholarship to go to school up here and mum picked the family up and <laughs> brought us here. And Canberra's pretty much been home ever since other than a few stints working overseas. So yeah. it's, so, a, it's a great city to live in. Yeah, you were um, involved with Greenpeace when you were younger too and, and was quite um, quite pivotal in doing some of the work for them where you um, were involved in the whaling campaigns and some international campaigns as well. So you travelled between Amsterdam and, and Canberra? Yeah, I started work for Greenpeace here in Canberra working yeah. as, a, as a political lobbyist actually, yeah. um, trying to convince federal politicians to do the right thing by the environment. But yeah. ultimately... I went to Greenpeace headquarters in Amsterdam, ran the Oceans campaign where we did work on mm -hmm. issues like anti-whaling, uh, overfishing, uh, ocean pollution, all those sort of things. It was a really inspiring job to have. I loved living overseas and working with colleagues from all around the world trying to protect the, the planet's oceans. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty special. It's probably given you a real perspective coming from a bit of an activist background. It's like walking your talk. I think, you know, most of the Greens I've met have an activist background, including when I lived in Canada, and um, it's been very much um, sticking to your principles. It is true. The party really yeah. comes from that grassroots activism background, whether it's in social movements or environmental movements. I think everybody who's ever been a member of Parliament for the Greens has got activist or uh, community sector background and it really I think brings a perspective to politics that is, yeah. is lost too often. Well it's almost like you've had the lived experience of what you're fighting for Yeah in indeed and I think you see it in the way we are members of parliaments as well there's always that activist element still in the way Greens yeah. conduct themselves in parliaments you know, yeah. standing up for things that no one else will talk about, being willing to put issues on the table to be the first ones to raise things. You know in my time as a Greens politician I've found that a lot of things we've talked about perhaps many years earlier and we were denigrated for at the time or people mm -hmm. said it's not possible do end up coming through 
some years down the track. And that's yeah. something I think we really bring to the space. Yeah, and that's something we're going to talk about a little bit later, just how much change has happened and things that we thought were impossible, mm. like women in the Senate. <laughs> and here yeah, we are. Indeed. <laughs> um, also, you know, you have um, some personal interests, which I think serve politics quite well. You're a very dedicated triathlete. And I believe that you, you know, run on average over 20 kilometres a day. And well, not maybe, quite that much. not during <laughs> the campaign. But, um, yeah. No, know. look, I, I was very lucky. I, I grew up playing soccer as a kid mm-hmm. and sort of always had that sport in me. And then I took up triathlon mm-hmm. while I was at uni. Mm-hmm. And it's really kept me active throughout my adult life. Mm-hmm. And in my later 40s now as I am, I'm still very active. And it's given me a lot of energy. Uh, it gets outside. I think it's great for your mental health. Yeah. I've travelled a bit to go to some amazing races around the world. Mm-hmm. And that's a great way of both seeing a place and meeting people. I once did a race across Cambodia, and we went to parts of Cambodia that tourists would never go to. Uh, It was a a phenomenal experience. We also went to areas that still had landmines. Mm -hmm. And as someone coming from Australia that's never thought about that, to be racing through an area like that was, you know, you learn a lot about life. You learn a lot about yourself. It gives you a lot of resilience. And I imagine that, you know, that kind of running too puts you into a bit of a meditative state where you do a lot of deep thinking while you're doing that. You get into that repeat motion of, you know, one foot in front of the other and it, it gets the brain into a different uh, different way of thinking. Absolutely. I find running very meditative and I think people who've just taken running up find that hard to believe because when yeah. you first start, it is hard. Yeah. Uh, but when you get to a point where your body's conditioned and, you, and you're fit, yeah. I find it very relaxing. And we're lucky here in Canberra. My sort of main running areas these days are Mount Ainsley, Mount Majura. You get birds, you get kangaroos, you get the sunrise, mm. you get wildflowers at this time of year. It's very, uh, it's very mm. connecting mm. and it's great to have the quiet yeah. space. I, I run by myself a lot mm. and it's a good way to have mm. some quality thinking time. I think that's the beauty of Canberra. We do live in a unique place and while we call it the bush capital and I think that's a lot of what both of you are about and the party's about is protecting that bush capital and, and keeping it as this beautiful place we can all enjoy and not letting it get overdeveloped or, uh, you know, forgotten. Yeah, we've just released a policy about repairing the land mm-hmm. and one of the things we want to do in that is make Canberra an urban biodiversity haven mm-hmm. and actually think about the city being that place that wildlife can move through mm-hmm not like it's a city. Mm. And that goes to a lot of things. It's not just about protecting those green corridors, mm. but also making sure that we think about when we're planting our tree species, mm. what sort of trees are we planting in terms of when they flower and what sort of food do they provide and habitat for animals. And so having different species that flower at different times of the year, those sort of things are really about mm. keeping nature in the city and making sure it's viable for mm. wildlife to be here. Mm. And Joe, you know, you've recently written a book the carbon diet in which you've have knocked something like 70% off from the um, carbon footprint? Yeah, that's right, Zena. I'm actually still working on the book, but I've written a website and articles and I'm making films. It's one of those whole multimedia projects that gets bigger and bigger every time you look at it. So, yeah, it was interesting, Zena. I am seriously freaked about climate change, I think, like most people these days. And I thought I would have a look at exactly how hard it is to make cuts because you hear a lot of commentary from federal politics, oh, it's impossible, you know, 1%, 2%, it's too expensive, it's too difficult. And I actually thought, oh, look, I'll I'll try and cut 75%. I'm sure, you know, that's ridiculous. Yeah, Nobody 1% to 75%. Nobody could do that. Yeah. And what I've actually found was I managed to, I, I, I measured my footprint and I measured an average Australian and I've actually managed to cut 77% off the average Australian making fairly 
ordinary changes, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's a bit of a shift in behaviour, but it gives you a, a good lifestyle and it is certainly well within the reach of most people. And it's, it's made me realise that actually making really big cuts is actually quite simple if you just have a bit of willpower and the right knowledge. And knowing what cuts to make. Like I think one of the things you mentioned was simply turning down your thermostat by three degrees yeah. made a huge difference. Yeah. Like that's not asking too much for people. No, it's not. What I've found too is typically there's a lot of different ways to get to the same end result. And I'm really enjoying now working with the Greens because we're so good at that. So when you look at uh, how how much energy goes on your house, you can, you can flip uh, – your insulation and and spend a lot of money and really build a really efficiently running house or you can just turn your thermostat down mm-hmm. and those two goals will get you to the same same mm-hmm. end result and mm-hmm. transport's sort of the same result mm-hmm. you can go out and buy an electric car and that's why the greens have put a bit of money into mm-hmm. that because it's a really effective way to cut mm-hmm. a lot of carbon emissions or you can catch the bus or you can drive less or you can ride your bike and all of those options are really good op- options so it was mm-hmm. actually quite empowering to find out how many different ways there are of getting to the same end goal. Mm. One of the lovely sayings we had from a fellow who was talking about permaculture is that when you talk about solar passive, it involves human active. Yeah. So in order to do a lot of these things, there has to be the human willingness part yeah, to do right. it as well. I, I, I think that's right. I think human active yeah. um, or a bit of tech. And typically both of those will get you there. Yeah. And you're also a business entrepreneur. You own a company called Send and Shred and you're partnered with The Green Shed. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> I would love to. It's been an absolute delight working with The Green Shed. They are a junk empire. Mm. What they do is they have built up this wonderful ecosystem mm. of recycling businesses. There's about a dozen of them and mm. they every time somebody comes up with a new idea, they're like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Let's help you. Let's help you with that. So we set up Send and Shred to target a problem waste stream mm-hmm. and the Green Shed help us, helped us put that together and that's running along now in e-commerce. Uh, so that, that's pretty good. But it's, it's, I come from the recycling industry and it's mm. interesting. It's another good example where there's lots of little problems mm. that need a specific little solution. And then there's a few big picture mm. changes mm. that are really good for government to step in and fix. That's brilliant. And I know you also mentioned you're an artist and I wasn't sure what sort of artist, so you'd love to hear about that. I am I am primarily a writer mm-hmm. um, and that's what I love. So I, mm-hmm. I write books. Is you're my a wordsmith. Thing. I'm, a, I'm a wordsmith, as, yeah. as you can tell from this very articulate interview I'm giving right now. I'm a wordsmith, a word turk um, But I also... I think you end up dabbling. I think most artists dabble in a few different things. So because I put the Carbon Diet website together, I started doing a whole lot of digital stuff. And I actually did a Lego sculpture at Art Not Apart the other year. It was interactive. It had little QR codes about climate change and carbon and there were a lot of spreadsheets. I do a lot of art with spreadsheets, which doesn't sound very artistic, but a lot of artists love spreadsheets. I think there's a certain part of the brain that, that likes to create systems for things that are really good at spreadsheets, yeah. I think that's right. And I've, I've come, come, come across a lot of greens who have that approach to life, you know. <laughs> the systems are broken now, so let's make better systems. I think that's right. We're also, a lot of us are quite data-focused, yeah. so it delights me to be hanging out with so many data geeks right now. Mm-hmm. I've never I've never met so many wonderful data geeks in my life. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it gives you a lot of energy, and I think that, that that's a truth to tell. When something gives you energy, you're in the right place, I right? think that's right, yeah. yeah. Well, so we'll shift a little bit and we'll get back into your platform here which is i love 
the slogan, I don't know who's brilliant, who came up with Build a Better Normal. I really much prefer it to Joe Biden's Build It Better. I think Build a Better Normal has a nice catch to it. So tell us a little bit about this platform, Build a Better Normal. I know you guys have recently released your final uh, parliamentary agreement status update for the Ninth Assembly. So there's a whole list of things there, but I won't run them off. I'll let you guys talk about that. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Look, the the slogan really came from, I guess, the sentiment of 2020. It has been an incredibly tough year Mm -hmm. from... And we've all been through it, the mm. smoke and the fires at the start of the year, which really affected this region. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of Canberrans were down the coast mm. over the summer. And we, of course, had the pall of smoke here right for many, many weeks that really impacted our lives. And then, of course, we've gone into the pandemic. And we were geared up to start campaigning at the start of the year. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how the ACT election cycle works. And we want to get out there. And that had to come to a halt because of the COVID shutdown mm-hmm. period. And we were really thinking about what was the important thing. And for me, one of the real lessons of COVID has been, it's been a tough time, but we've also seen some positives out of it. People have been reminded of what's important in life. And we heard some politicians talking about, we want to snap back. We just want to get back to the way it was. And the reality is the way it was, was not great. We have the climate crisis. We have a housing affordability crisis in Australia. We have a, a crisis of inequality where the gap between rich and poor is growing. And so we don't want to just go back to that old normal. And that's where that phrase came from. We're just sit, really sitting around chewing the fat. And we started talking about that idea that we wanted to build a better normal. And we thought that actually spoke entirely of where we're coming from this campaign. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the things you just talked about in your personal introductions relate to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you grew up on the South Coast and the South Coast was so badly devastated. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had personal experiences of defending your own home there and and then back in 2003, your parents' home in Holder during yeah. the Canberra fires. So appreciating that from a you know experiential place must be really impactful and the motivations to, to make these changes. Joe was talking about, you know, a lot of the people in the Greens being data nerds. We are, I think, a, a group who tend to really look at the evidence and look at the science. Mm. And you know, I've worked on climate change issues with Greenpeace for over, well, I started with Greenpeace over 20 years ago and in politics I've continued with those same issues. Mm. And it's one thing to take it, you know, you're looking at the science papers and you're reading the research mm. and you know it's important. Mm. But to experience those things, and Australians are starting to experience mm. the impacts of climate change, just as other people in other parts of the world. For us, it's been about fire and drought and extreme heat Mm -hmm. and smoke. Mm -hmm. It's what the scientists for many years have told us Mm -hmm. we're going to experience. To now actually be there, a lot of people found the summer very tough at a deep emotional level Mm -hmm. because they they saw a future they'd always feared actually starting to land. Mm -hmm. I still have a lot of optimism. You have to. Mm -hmm. You have to to be in politics. And I bring that optimism to my role every day and I feel very privileged Mm -hmm. to have this role. There is still time to turn this around, but we have to be really focused. Mm. I think it's a lovely saying by Dr. Edward Bark that says, you don't know what is enough until you know what's more than enough. <laughs> and I think that 2020 has been delivering on that promise. You mm. know, there's been no respite. Everyone, the bushfires would have been a once-in-a-lifetime experience for a lot of people to go to that degree of um, nationwide impact mm. and the fallout from that, you know, the economic fallout from that, the mental health fallout from that, all of that's still, still very much um, an issue. And then immediately after that, you know, you get slammed on camera, we got the hail, then we got mm. COVID and, and on it goes. You know, we've got, like, compounding issues. So this idea, of you said, snapping back, even that word makes me recoil a little bit because, you know, you can't snap back to something without examining what brought you there to start yeah. with. Look, I, I think that's right, Zena, and I've been in a lot of the climate change marches, a lot of the activism in recent years, and what we're seeing is the the really strong voices coming through are the school strikers and they're amazing. But honestly, I do not 
want to spend another day where I watch children in their thousands begging for their lives in the streets. Mm. And I think when you've seen that, I've got a six-year-old daughter and she comes along to these mm. marches and she explained the carbon cycle to me mm. the other day at breakfast. And I was sort of blown away. I'm like, right, let's just put you in the assembly. I think, I think this is how we're going to get real change. Mm. But the, the people who have grown up with this knowledge in their bones of what is happening, they just can't bear to watch it anymore. We just mm. need to get on and fix it. It's not that hard. We actually, I'm, I'm with Shane, I'm still quite optimistic because most of the big problems, we actually have the solutions. It's simply about rolling them out quickly. And what we're finding, you know, we've switched to 100% renewable power. You can do it. The world doesn't fall apart. You end up with quite cheap electricity. It works. All of this stuff works. We just have to get on and do it. Is the challenge convincing people who are still quite comfortable where they are to make a change that they don't really understand and potentially may inconvenience them very slightly? For me, one of the inspiring things out of COVID has been we saw you can you can actually make change very quickly, and in this case, you know the scientists and the medical specialists have really led the charge, and we've had that very evidence-based approach, and we've been able to make rapid change because people realised we needed to. So you know, there's always that sense of uh, people need to understand. I think the challenge on climate change has been it is such a big and complex problem. Uh, it, it, so many facets of our lives need to be adjusted. But as I say, the COVID experience has given me optimism because mm. Australians went, well, we've got to get on with this. And globally, we've seen it. And people turned on a dime overnight. Mm. And they've realised both you can do it. And obviously with COVID, there have been some tough parts, but there's also been some positives where people have been reminded of, mm. of those important things and perhaps forced to reevaluate what really matters. Mm. And I think if we could take that same approach to climate change, we could make a massive impact very quickly. Yeah, we've hit the crux of it there. You know, you've got this evidence-based approach which says, okay, we need to do these things to get through COVID. And that's been readily embraced for the most part, a uh, few dissenters, but for the most part. But yet there's so much resistance to embracing the science on climate change. You know, is, is that because it's a, a profit-impacting decision, you know, where you're looking at, okay, we've got a suddenly collapsed economy with COVID, so there's immediate action has been taken to try and, you know shore that up but climate change is still i think for some people they still think it's further down the road it's you know even though it's here now it hasn't hit them here now i i i think that visceral experience we've had of what climate change is this year has helped but it's interesting i've i've like most of us have been in the environmental movement our whole lives and we talked about climate change the wrong way for a long time and there's a lot of people coming out now with research and commentary about how we did it wrong and why that was wrong and what cognitive dissonance is. And there's a lot of odd things going on. I think in Australia and America, climate change for some reason became a political idea instead of a, a, a fact of life. And in other countries where climate change was a fact of life, people on different sides would come up with different approaches, but everybody got stuck in and started fixing it. I'm not really sure why that didn't happen in this country, but, you know, we've got the chance to turn it around now. I am a bit concerned. We have opportunities coming out of COVID and we need to seize those opportunities. We don't really have time to keep messing about and debating, is it, isn't it? How bad is it? How much do we need to do? We just need to jump in and fix it. And we have, we have the knowledge, we have the tools. It's really not hard. So we need to start listening to six-year-olds, essentially. And <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send my six-year-old up to Parliament House yeah. and we'll just sort it out. But, you know, Gen Z has been really significant in that respect because they're so aware, you know. They've grown up with that awareness from, you know, the moment they can comprehend what it means. And they very much 
care about it. There's a, there's a real genuine connection to wanting to do something. Yeah, absolutely. And they they both understand the depth of the problem and the complexity of it, but they also know how to speak about it very, very simply and not be thrown off. I'm, I'm amazed at mm-hmm. the interviews these kids are giving. Yeah. They're just, that. yeah, it, it really gives me a lot of hope and we just need to put things on the right track yeah. and then, you know, give it 10, 20 years, we'll be all right. So the next generation, once we vote them in, we'll be good. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And, you know, as you said, the, the, this coming out of COVID, like, you know, building a better normal, creating an economic recovery that's sustainable. Like you, you touched on some things that were really great ideas. Like the idea is, okay, how do you pay for all of this? How do you how do you create this economic recovery? Well, it sounds like if we're going to go along the track of, you know, taking care of our environment, there's tremendous potential for green jobs, you know, tremendous potential for, for you know, green energy and, and changing some of the things in a, in a very, very um, affordable way. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, the bottom line is science tells us we need to do these things, mm-hmm. but yet we also need to make a living at the same time mm-hmm. and be able to pay for it and the like. And mm-hmm. certainly, you know, for the ACT, our move to 100% renewable electricity has proven the economic case. Canberra does continue to have the cheapest electricity prices in Australia, mm-hmm. but every bit of power, or every bit of electricity mm-hmm. used in the city comes from a renewable source. Mm-hmm. In addition, it's also generated huge investment uh, to build the wind and solar farms that pe- now power mm-hmm. the ACT has been seen $2 billion of investment across Australia mm-hmm. and $500 million of economic return in the ACT over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that investment is incurred in regional areas. Mm-hmm. One of my favourite parts of that is one of the wind farms we've contracted is actually up in uh, the New England in Barnaby mm-hmm. Joyce's mm-hmm. electorate. And so we've created jobs up there, even though Barnaby's had a go at us for being crazy, <laughs> I think was his exact word, for going to 100% renewable electricity. So there is a bit of a disconnect there, but uh, what we've done is prove Mm -hmm. that you can make these changes, do it in a way that's economically sound uh, and get the great environmental outcomes. I know Mm -hmm. Joe, with her experience in recycling has told me a lot about how many jobs there are, how jobs rich recycling is. Yeah, that's that's what we found. There's a lot of government reports on this. For every three jobs in landfill, there are nine jobs in recycling. And I think that's a similar story that gets told in mm-hmm. renewables and, frankly, a lot of the new green industries and new the new green technologies, they're quite jobs-rich. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of research mm-hmm. work that comes out of them. There's a lot of sort of manual labour. There's a lot of really interesting skilled labour. There's a lot of uh, a much mm-hmm. more diverse workforce that you end up. And there's a lot of uh, different industries that are suitable for different areas. It's not just sort of inner city jobs or country jobs. It's sort of jobs across the board. So it's a really, really good way to restructure an economy that maybe wasn't serving everybody well in the first place. Again, getting back to that idea of let's not go back to normal. It wasn't working for a lot of people. Let's build a better one. And when you look at, you know, maybe people who've multi-generational farming or, you know, sort of very, very traditional mindset around what jobs have to look like, trying to embrace this new technology and these new concepts. You know, what's a really good way to, to help them see that it's very viable and there's, we're not, they're not losing anything by changing the way they do something? So if like, we get an example of that to help you into it, um, we had people who were specialising in fungi on the show recently and they were helping farmers um, to basically uh, put aliveness back into the soil by having uh, this sort of a mycelium mat that grows and it sort of captures carbon and, and feeds all sorts of nutrients back into the soil. So just simply having that in their landscape was improving the quality of, of their soil and their land and oh. without having to change too much about how they farmed. How cool is fungi? Yeah, you know, yeah. fungi is just this alien bucket of cool. Um, look, Scotty is actually a much 
better agriculturalist than I'll ever be. But in some ways, it's about going back to the old rather than reinventing the new. There is some great new. I'm hearing a lot of really cool things about algae. That's the first I've heard about fungi. That's awesome. A lot of the carbon storage systems that we're looking at are different. We're looking at some really good ways to feed our animals differently so that we they're a bit less carbon intensive. There's great work all around, but a lot of it is just going back to those older principles that probably were familiar in multi-generational farms 100 or 200 or 300 years ago of that regenerational farming of producing food and producing fibre in a way that doesn't deteriorate the land and, frankly, is probably improving the land. So the days before superphosphate... Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the other important idea that's really big in the in the climate movement is the notion of a just transition. Mm. The world will be different and there will be different jobs, mm. but we need to do that in a way that's fair and takes people on the journey. A great local example I often talk about is we need to move our Action's bus fleet to being mm. zero emission vehicles. Mm. Now, at the moment, there's a team of diesel mechanics that fix Canberra's buses. Mm. That's their job. That's what they've been mm-hmm. trained to do. They will have gone through their apprenticeship. We don't want to see them on the scrap heap. Mm-hmm. We want to see them become the mechanics who fix our electric buses in the future and maintain them. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of work we need to do to make sure people don't get left behind. I think mm-hmm. that's where you have seen populist politics rise in some mm-hmm. countries because the economic transitions we've been through in recent years have all mm-hmm. been about cutting corners, mm-hmm. cutting jobs, making more money for the shareholders. They haven't looked after the workers enough mm-hmm. and an important part of getting a, a climate transition mm-hmm. is having a just, a just mm-hmm. transition to that zero carbon future. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just have to look at the Detroit automotive industry and what happened there, you know, that was the foundation of, of America's industry for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And what if that became an industry for electric vehicles? What if that, all that could be go back into Detroit and all that could start up in a, in a clean energy way and all those people could be, you know, retrained to work in the automotive industry in a way that was sustainable? And I think we can do some of that here in Canberra. You know, Joe's talked about recycling industries. It's such a great institution in Canberra. I think we underrate the importance of vocational education in Australia a little bit. Uni's become the thing, and uni's great for some people. Uh, but we should be strong in our vocational education. Because of Canberra's move to renewables, we got the Southern Hemisphere's first globally accredited wind training course at CIT at Bruce. So there's young people out there now being trained and they've got, they, they've got the skills to go and work on wind farms mm-hmm. all over Australia and, frankly, anywhere in the world. Uh, and that's what we need to bring to this city so that we are creating hope for young people, particularly, again, through COVID, where if you're in year 12 at the moment, it's a pretty tough time. Yeah. We all remember our year 12 experience, you know, formal at mm-hmm. the end of the year, go on to your first job or go to uni or your gap year, whatever you had in mind. This is a year we need to be saying to our young people, actually, we've got a vision for your future. And here's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. And that is the thing with COVID. So many of the young people who are just entering the workforce or trying to make a decision about how to enter the workforce, what workforce is going to be left for them, this mm-hmm. is the potential new area of growth, right? There's jobs that don't even have names yet that need to be created. Yeah, we've got a, we've got a lot of environmental repair to do. Yeah. You know, and again, in our repairing the land package, we've talked about the idea of employing a team of Indigenous rangers in Canberra. Mm-hmm. We think that there's a lot of traditional knowledge and it's long-term secure jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I, what a lot of people, young people talk about is job insecurity. Mm-hmm. That idea that you're either casual, part-time, underemployed, or you've got a job but it may not last. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's hard to build your future when you don't know what things are going to look like just over the horizon. Yeah. Mm. And I guess if you're looking at the times we're in where it's, it's times where 
our system, I mean, the way John Michael Greer puts it is that there's three economies. There's the economy of nature, which provides everything that any other economies build upon. And you can look like that as the base level of the pyramid. And then there's, there's the human sort of economy, which sits on top of that. And that's whatever our brains and smarts can do with the original economy, which is the base level. So that's the next level up. And then there's another level on top of that, which is how us crazy humans organise and distribute and muck around with all that wealth. And that's the financial economy. That's the political economy. That's all of the stuff that's actually in our own heads, but we all agree upon it. So it sort of becomes real and affects the actual physical world. Now, we're heading for a place where that base of the pyramid is going to start getting mucked up. And because that's the foundations for both our human pool of physical wealth, the buildings, the, the farmland, the soil, the food supplies, and, of course, on top of that, the, the political and economic institutions that we have, those layers on top are going to, I guess, the further up the tower you are, the more you wobble. Um, how, how are the Greens looking at the potential for some of our institutions? I mean, you're very much based within the institution of parliament, um, and, of course, anything to do with Parliament is very much based in the economic sort of system. What happens if those systems fail and we have to do it again? Are we, are we looking at that sort of level of, of looking into the future and go, well, what if all this collapsed? What if the food system broke down? What if what, if what happened? Hmm. So, Scotty, I think what in some ways... What if the toilet ways... paper system broke down? <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was just going to... I think we're already seeing some of these... Uh, ideologically delicate systems collapse and Shane was uh, talking about how our environmental package is turning Canberra into a wildlife sanctuary. I discovered at the Trash and Treasure Markets the other week we've actually become a human sanctuary too. So we right now in Canberra have a whole bunch of growers from the region whose small towns uh, were decimated by fires and drought who've now moved to Canberra, uh, possibly temporarily, possibly permanently. I was planning on finishing my carbon diet project at the start of this year. When I started, I thought, oh, look, I'll interview somebody from one of those awful island nations that's going underwater and, and chat to them about what it's like to be a climate change refugee. I ended up having climate change refugees living in my house in Browlee because their home had burnt down. I didn't actually expect that to happen quite as quickly when I started the project. So we're already seeing that happening. I don't think collapse comes... In a flash, I think collapse comes in a whimper. And I think what is happening now is we're starting to realise that the system we've built on that base, on that finite base with endless growth, is not working. <laughs> it's not possible. We knew it wasn't possible and we're now finding out how it's not possible. So what we have to do is jump in and readjust the way we do things. So I, 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 I like the regenerative ideas, I'm hearing a lot about donut economics, it's all based on that finite natural world and how do we look after the needs of our people and look after the needs of our planet at the same time. And it is possible, it's just a lot of different things that we need to do. So that's one of the... I guess um, you can see sorry, that, that yeah. donut picture if people have seen it as, as looking at that pyramid of the three economies from the top. Yeah, yeah and that idea of democracy I think is... <coughs> sorry, very... <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry about that. It's croaky old end of uh, 
hint of winter, bit of voice mm-hmm. there. But the notion of democracy is really important in that context as well. Mm-hmm. And you touched on is democracy collapsing? Well, I think democracy is certainly being under pressure at the moment. Mm-hmm. And the US is perhaps the mm-hmm. most clear example of that. Mm-hmm. But democracy cannot fail. It's the best mechanism we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and may not be a perfect mechanism, mm-hmm. but it's the mechanism that most empowers people. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see really important parts of our platform they're actually about strengthening those democratic ideas mm-hmm. and getting greater participation. Just today, we're actually launching a new policy that talks about um, having Canberrans more involved in, their, in decision-making in their neighbourhoods. Mm-hmm. We want to allocate $100,000 of expenditure for every suburb each year, mm-hmm. and the local community decides how they get spent. Mm-hmm. And so that might be they want more trees planted in their suburb, they might want a playground upgraded, they might like to have a party at the shops. Mm-hmm. It can be a range of things, mm-hmm. but we want actual communities to come together and work out how they're going to spend that money. And I think this will be controversial. I think people are going to say, oh, that can't work and imagine the chaos. But we actually part of the idea is that people will need to work out how to work together. And I think that we'll be quite inspired by how that comes out. We've seen it, again, through the COVID period where people have just set up little community support networks. People can do it. Uh, and we, want, we think there's a role for government to help facilitate that. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Um, in the place in the world where that sort of system was implemented in a, in a really concrete way, in, in northern Syria of all places, they, they were very much ready when that absence of power turned up, they had their own democratic, localised sovereignty system ready to go and, and put it into place. And that was successful for seven years until Donald Trump murdered a lot of them. Yeah, and a lot of that is about empowerment. You know, and I think in modern Western democracies, uh, people have become very disconnected from the political system. That produces distrust, it produces cynicism, and that's really cancerous for democracy. And so in a place like Canberra, we need to think about, well, how do we bring some of that back? And we see an idea like this as being a very practical thing. You know, you might say, well, it's only $100,000 a suburb, but, you know, getting that system building, getting it working, and then creating layers and layers on top of that as people get more used to participation. As, frankly, government gets better at having citizens participate in decisions, I think we'll see real strength grow from that sort of a model. And this is the deliberative democracy programs, like the citizens' juries that you're talking about? Yeah, citizens' juries are, a slight, I guess, a similar version. We've had a couple of citizens' juries in the ACT in the last few years. Of all things, one was over compulsory third-party insurance, <laughs> but there was, also, there was one about putting together a carer's strategy and another one was on actually a little bit of that idea of prioritising um, city services delivery. Mm-hmm. Each of them in their different ways has been very successful. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some learnings from them as well because they're new. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even the one on, on compulsory third-party insurance, most of the people who participated in that found it really interesting. They appreciated the way it worked and they felt really empowered by being given a bunch of information and then taking a decision, and particularly because government had said... Can you just run us through what a citizen's jury is? Yeah, sure. So I was jumping straight into an assumed knowledge there, Scott. <laughs> That's all good. The way they generally work is a random group of people are selected. They're invited to participate on a particular topic. The question is put there, and then experts are invited to come in and present, present to the jurists. So the jurists are then in a position where they have a good level of knowledge. They understand the complexity of the problem. They see the different perspectives, and then they're they are then working through and coming up with a conclusion. That's probably the, the short description of how they go. Yeah. So it's putting the citizen back into the equation. You know, like a lot of people feel really removed from the decision-making process. 
And, you know, as we can see what's happening, particularly in North America, they're like the canary in the cold mine right now. You know, we've got mass, masses of wealth transfer from the working class into mm. the 1%. And they've probably made their greatest profit ever since COVID, mm. which is, you know, demonstrative of a system that isn't working and isn't fair. I, I think that's right, Zena. And I think uh, the more you see protest movements and particularly climate change but you know we're seeing an awful lot of protest movements on some of these big fundamental issues springing up in Australia and America and other places I think that's a really really good symptom that you're not listening and you know one of the things that you talked about earlier which was um you know, coming out of COVID, we've seen a lot of um, people really struggling with the mental health aspect of being in lockdown and especially what's happening in Victoria now. I know that you're Minister for Mental Health and there's some um, ideas that you've got that potentially can help us move through this very, very challenging period and implement some new approaches to things like the the PACER approach rather than people in flak vests with guns showing up at your door. (laughs) You've got a support team. (laughs) Yeah, look, it's been a fascinating role being the Minister for Mental Health. It's the first time we've had it here in the ACT and we deliberately created the portfolio because we know that mental health is such a big issue in our community. I think it's a very positive time that Australians are talking more openly about mental health, but that's also a real challenge for the system because as people say, all right, I will talk about it, we also need to make sure the service system is evolving to meet that demand, that expectation, the correct expectation that we do support people. In terms of COVID, when we're talking about coming out the other side, I think we've got a long way to go on COVID as well. Mm-hmm. We're certainly not in the clear yet, and people really get that now. I think we saw that with the second wave in Victoria where you know, I think the first batch in Australia, everyone kind of mm-hmm. went, well, this is bad, but we can knuckle down and get through this. We sort of came out the other side, and I think as a nation, we were kind of patting ourselves on the back a bit going, yeah, mm-hmm. good job us, and we did do a good job. But that second wave, I think, really got to people where they realised that this is going to be a tougher haul, and so it's really has put that greater focus on mental health. I think a lot of us know people in Melbourne, we're having the conversations with them, they are doing it tough down there. Uh, And so we do need to really think about mental health through this period. You mentioned PACER and that is a program we've introduced in the ACT. It stands for a Police Ambulance Clinician Emergency Response. It's a tri-service model where we've literally got a vehicle that has a police officer, a a paramedic and a mental health clinician traveling together in response to mental health call-outs. What it does is it brings the best of each of their skills to what are really difficult situations Mm -hmm. where someone's having literally the worst day of their life Mm -hmm. uh, and not just having, Mm -hmm. most often is police who turn Mm -hmm. up first. And there is still a role for police. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, occasionally the situations do get violent. Mm -hmm. But what we're seeing in these, the the use of force has gone down enormously when PACER turns up Mm -hmm. compared to when police turns up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many people now, more than 80% of PACER call-outs, people are not being taken to hospital. The team can actually support them in their home. And from a mental health point of view, it's so much better to get the support in your home where you feel comfortable. It's your place of safety uh, than ending up in the emergency department or an inpatient unit. So PACE has been a great innovation. I think that's where we need to go with mental health is meeting people more where they're at, less of a acute medical focus and more of a supportive and early intervention focus. Just less of a reactionary response and more yeah. of a compassionate response. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I know the staff who are working on PACER really love it. You know, the police will say it's great turning out with a mental health clinician because they've really got the skills. Mm. The paramedics are important because they've got different skills. And, you know, again, people will have self-harm on occasion, so you do need that physical response. But it is very much about responding 
from a mental health place rather than from a law enforcement place. Now, you actually took a ride with Pacer recently, right? You went out and uh, yeah. got to observe all of this firsthand. Yeah, I did spend a, a night with the team recently travelling around with them. I didn't go into the actual the situations. I figure when someone's in a mental health crisis, they don't need the minister spectating. But I, I, did, I did travel with the team in the car and it was fantastic to get to talk to them and you know, debrief in the car after each of the incidents. And you know, We were called out to literally suicidal crises where we went under lights and sirens to get there in a hurry. And even in those occasions, people were able to be worked with where they were able to stay at home. And I think that's a really positive outcome. Now, that won't be the case. Each case is unique. And that's certainly an important part of the mental health story is knowing that no two, pers- two people's journeys is the same. But having these kind of services means that we can look after them a lot better. Mm-hmm. And you potentially have people who maybe wouldn't be having a mental health crisis outside of COVID. You know, there's, there, mm. there's been triggers. So there's, I think that Beyond Blue was saying that their stats are something like, a, what did they say, a 50% increase, a 50% spike in calls um, calls out for depression and anxiety and potential suicide. And that uh, Lifeline saying that they all have a 30% spike in their mm. calls for help. Mm. So these are people who probably during sort of calmer times wouldn't be pushed to the edge and and wouldn't be seeking support services. We've really seen two things, two different streams almost from a mental health point of view during COVID. One has been people who did have an existing mental health condition have sometimes really struggled. Their normal coping mechanisms have been thrown off kilter. Uh, And so we have seen some people who've uh, had a bad period where they can normally manage their mental health condition quite well. And then as you've touched on, there are new people who've never really experienced, struggled with their mental well-being before, who have particularly anxiety and depression, whether it's been related to job loss, uh, related to isolation of not having connection with family and friends. And so that is a new group, and we're really working hard to support them as much as we can. Mm, that's terrific. So with the um, resources that we're talking about for maybe doing things a little bit differently, if I can go back to some of the ideas of... Um, you know, a green approach to building, for instance. Like, I know that, um, Joe, you're um, recently you're talking about things like, is it a DA approval that's not, uh, not yes. required anymore? And yeah. certain things that are not getting consultation in the community and then maybe causing a little bit of friction around how we do that. Oh, um, that's right. Canberra's, Canberra's planning laws. Look, we had uh, Greens, MLA, Caroline Lacuda in the Assembly for years and years chipping away and she got a lot done in planning and she was sad that she didn't mm-hmm. fix the entire system before she left, um, which I think is a reflection of, mm-hmm. of how ambitious Caroline is. There are a lot of devils in the detail with planning. There are a lot of small changes that have happened over the last 10 and 20 years mm-hmm. that have meant we are building in a way that is not climate resilient, is not high quality, frankly doesn't meet people's needs and doesn't have enough consultation, which means nobody is really very happy about the mm. outcomes there. And the, People the, making lots of money. But, well, yeah, so, and <laughs> that, which is another issue altogether. And look, the Greens have done a lot. Some of these systemic problems, the Greens have actually jumped mm. in and shone a light on them and started to fix them. And that's why we've been talking about truth in political advertising, which we've now got into legislation. We've talked about developer donations. We've talked about political party donations. We feel that there are some systemic problems there and the Greens don't take corporate donations. And we're now chipping away at the laws to make sure that those same standards apply across the board because we think it's a better outcome. Um, But yeah, that that particular one turns out, unfortunately, to be a fairly common issue. Mm -hmm. 
We are working, the Greens are trying to get in better standards on uh, energy efficiency because buildings are going up now that frankly aren't climate resilient and that they're going to have this massive Mm -hmm. energy and cost footprint for the next 50 years Mm -hmm. and we're still building them like that. It it makes no sense at all. Mm -hmm. And then the the, the flip side of that is there's a whole lot of DA exemptions that Mm -hmm. have come through so that people Mm -hmm. won't necessarily get a say Mm -hmm. in how close buildings go up next door to them, in in what the shape of their town looks like. And we actually want to have meaningful consultation. And what that means is Mm -hmm. about a billion mm-hmm. tiny changes to the legislative planning laws and we just have to keep chipping mm-hmm. away I think. Mm-hmm. And two things I've personally noticed like I live in a little rural village that is heritage listed outside of Canberra mm-hmm. and there's a lot of new builds going up that don't look anything like a heritage building and it's really changed the um, sort of ambience yeah. of the village and yeah. thinking oh how are these things getting passed and then you look at a little village on the south coast like Tilba which is also mm-hmm. a heritage village which is gorgeous and everything looks like it's still you know caught in the 1800s down there so again you've got you know like different situations where yes Tilba's a gorgeous looking village but it only just barely survived the bushfires. Like yeah. the bushfire wind change, very very lucky, didn't take out Tilba. Uh, <laughs> and wooden buildings. Yeah, yeah, and there was there was there was no um, there was no protection for the village. Like as you saw with Cabago, you know, mm. Cabago and Quama were decimated. Um, so if we're looking at you know people being allowed to build, you know, without consultation in the community, um, they've got the the visual aspect, the ambience of, you know, re- retaining um, a feel of a place, but then you've also got the practical side of, okay, how are we going to come back from what happened on the South Coast and if people want to stay in their communities and rebuild, how are we going to protect them and get them building in a way that's sustainable and gives them a better chance of getting through what will very likely be another bushfire crisis, if not this summer, then a, a subsequent summer? I find it really odd, and it's maybe just me personally, but when people sort of want to move into an area mm-hmm. they do something so fundamentally different you know so mm-hmm. you see people who buy into an older suburb because they're beautiful and they're tree lined and then mm-hmm. they move in and they scrape the block clear mm-hmm. and build the biggest house you can imagine that looks know, like a shipping container with, with no trees left <laughs> around it and the like and it's, mm-hmm. it just doesn't fit and I, I wonder why I do wonder why people do that and of course people are entitled to their own taste to some mm-hmm. extent and you know that's fair enough but mm-hmm. um, I think a little bit of modesty wouldn't go astray as well mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. we, we seem to have this thing mm-hmm. that you need to have a massive house mm-hmm. and we probably don't use all of it mm-hmm. You just got to clean the bugger. Mm. Why would you build a house that large? Well, I've noticed often when uh, when those houses are built, after they've finished, a little for sale sign comes up, and they sell the house for a million dollars. Yeah. And they might have built two houses on the block they bought for eight hundred thousand dollars, and mm. sell them both for a million. So mm. it might just be a money making jobby, and that's what has proven to be the most profitable. Yeah, and you know this is a real challenge for the Greens. We're really conscious that we do need to build a more compact city. We don't want Canberra just to keep spreading out. Every new suburb eats up some remnant bushland or eats up that land that could be used for agriculture. The further are you out from the city, the more your transport costs, the less chance you can walk or cycle or catch public transport. So having a compact city is a good thing. But I think we're at a really tricky point where people don't like the urban densification that they're seeing. And that's something we really want to combat as well. Urban density can work really well. It can be very people-friendly. But we need to make sure there's green space around that, that our mm-hmm. public spaces, the parks, are really well looked after. Because if you live in an apartment, mm-hmm. the local park does become your backyard. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, those parks need to be looked after really well. Mm-hmm. So we think there is a, v- a vision out there where you can build a compact, people-friendly city mm-hmm. without it being a concrete jungle. But we're not getting that right at the moment. And that's mm-hmm. something we have to really challenge in the next few years. So like trying to humiliate urban heat islands and things that are happening in high-density concrete 
builds. Um, potential having green roofs, potential of building maybe partially into the ground, which would be, again, a, a response to maybe building more bushfire safe dwellings. Yeah, look, absolutely. And we've, the, the Greens have got our 30% canopy coverage target. Mm. That means trees. That also means green spaces. Uh, I think there's a much bigger role for green roofs and vertical guns than we've seen so far mm. in Canberra. Um, and that, that came out of a lot of places. Most, what we're finding is once you look at the problems and look at the evidence, you tend to come up with solutions that work really well and fix a whole lot of problems at once. So that, that, drops the temperature by a few degrees, literally by a few degrees on the urban heat island. It's making the habitat for the animals, particularly the animals that are fled here, but permanent wildlife habitat and bee habitat. And people like it. It, it makes people happier. It helps mental health. It lets them get out and, and be connected. So you've actually sort of sometimes, I think, got to look at, look at all the... Look at it. Don't, don't look at one problem separately look holistically at the problems that are happening and then you can usually come up with some good solutions that address a whole lot of them and then commit <laughs> you need to actually say okay this is what we're going to do and now we're going to put this in place and let's just stick to the target people and let's get it through and you know everything we've talked about on the show is always in my mind I'm touching back on other guests we've had and you know because everybody's on the big picture, they're all really saying the same thing. They're talking about it from their perspective and their industry. But, for instance, we had a, um, three people on here who were trying to get um, tiny home communities off the ground. Um, and one lady who runs Live Simply, um, she was looking at the demographic of people who are really struggling with affordable housing. And just there's no support services there for them to, especially as they get older, you know, um, have sustainable housing that's also environmentally friendly, which is something that they want. So she was looking at building you know, sort of tiny home communities, but because of the zoning laws and a lot of the restrictions and NIMBYs and all sorts of other issues that she was facing, the only way she could get um, approval was to do it on an old caravan site. And then the cost of buying an old caravan site, which also had the potential to be developed into traditional residential housing but a greater profit, you know, she was finding it really difficult. So um, I know that in North America, they've now actually zoned areas for tiny homes and they've got something called laneway housing in Canada in the city. So they have a lot of um, what would have been garages in people's laneways, which have now been allowed to be turned into studio builds. So you have the garage underneath and the studio build on top. So, you you're, you know, you're... you're increasing the housing stock and you're mm. increasing affordable housing. So what sort of things have um, you guys got planned maybe in the future for having affordable housing concepts or looking at some of the legislation around zoning for um, small footprint houses? <laughs> the first thing you remind me of, we were talking earlier about optimism. Yeah. And I find, for me, a lot of my optimism is inspired by mm. people who are doing those interesting projects. Mm -hmm. And across the community, there are people doing terrific things, often on a small scale and without much funding or anything, they're just getting on and doing it. And I think a lot of the answers do lie in those places. Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, is saying we really there's a role for government there mm -hmm. to help make those things possible. Uh, so much of the things that go wrong in our community uh, market failures mm. and there's a very clear role mm. for government you know and that's one of the big debates mm. one of the big philosophical debates is should government be big government or small government well i think government's job is to correct those market failures mm. and really step in and make sure that we get the right outcome for people rather than for the economy mm. so to speak mm. on housing it is one of the key issues we think at this act mm. election it was the first policy we launched mm -hmm. as part of our campaign to say canberra does have a housing affordability crisis uh, and we, can, we really need to get stuck into it in the next few years. Mm. Our plan at this stage is to build a 1,000 new 
affordable and government houses over the next four years. We think that can be done. Uh, and it would not only provide housing for those uh, lower income ends of the market, but it would also be a, a quite terrific economic stimulus for the construction sector. So not just building you know, the, the, as fast as we can, but actually building houses that have a strong social dividend as well. Mm. Uh, so creating community as well within that yeah. build. Yeah. And that goes to your other point around having different housing types. Mm. We need to look at how we can do that. During this term of the Assembly, uh, uh, we've got a project up that's called the Demonstration Housing Project, and it is about the idea of bending the rules so that people can do some different things. Mm. I think a lot of people struggle with things they've not seen before. Mm. And so part of it is actually getting some good examples mm -hmm. going because people go and actually, oh, I can imagine now what that would be like and that looks really appealing. Things like the Nightingale model from Melbourne, mm -hmm. uh, housing co-ops, things where the people have got shared kitchens, mm -hmm. shared garden spaces, mm -hmm. even shared laundries, mm -hmm. those sort of things that help keep the cost down. Mm -hmm build a bit of sense of community, but are a great way to live non mm -hmm. nonetheless. Yeah. And you're almost recreating a village within a city, mm. you know, in that sense. What I've seen in a lot of the co-housing that came out of the Scandinavian model was that people who would normally be quite isolated, and especially during a situation like COVID, maybe not being able to access the support and the resources, in these co-housing communities, they have, like, their village. They have, mm. you know, single parents have access to people who can help them with childcare. Older residents have people who can help them with maybe physically daunting tasks or companionship. I mean, there's a potential for that. We, we live in a we live in a city, and we live very compartmentalised in that mm. city right now. And the, mm. you said you buy these enormous homes, and maybe there's only a couple of you rattling around in it, and there's a lot of empty space. And how much of that is necessary? You know, it's it's maybe embracing a different way of living, and that can be incredibly rewarding. If you talk to people who've gone tiny, a lot of them say that it's the best decision they ever made. They realise how much of their life and their energy went to paying a mortgage for space mm. they weren't using. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I grew up in Canberra. I've been here my whole life. And there's this funny little disconnect where the things we like to travel and the things we love when we travel of these, you know, vibrant cities and these, you know, traditional villages and these different communal ways of living and these different social structures and then we come back to Canberra and we sort of have this vision in our head of a 1950s that I suspect never really existed in the first place. I don't know. I was born in 77. But we have this vision of everybody needs this great big house on this great big block with lots of big, big walls and, and lots of space. And I'm, I'm not sure it's actually what every single person actually wants. Um, you know, you obviously need lots of choices and to let people pick the way they want to live. But I think we narrow our vision when we come back home and we don't sort of hold on to the things that we really liked that we saw elsewhere. So I think a lot of it is about opening up and having a look at some of the different ways and some of the different things that are working. Yeah. And that creating affordability too, like for changing the way we do bills. You yeah. know, that it's, I mean, we'll probably touch on another point here that you guys have on your platform, which is um, raising the rate and keeping um, the current job seeker rate um, where it is or before the reductions happened on the 25th of September. So, you know, if you look at stats, we had um, Dr. Emma Campbell from ATCOS here about a month ago and she was talking about the homeless crisis and all sorts of other issues that they're working on. And, you know, you've got a situation where you had 0% availability of rental housing in Canberra for people that were on the old job seeker rate. So without any other supports or access to government housing, they were on the street, effectively. Mm -hmm. There was no roof over their head. So trying to um, 
fix the public housing crisis is great. Yes, we need to build more housing stock. We need to have homes for people. But we've also got to make it so they can afford those homes and they can contribute back into the economy. They have money that they can contribute and spend and become part of the, um, you know, the consumer economy in a healthy way, not in a, a starvation survival way. Mm-hmm. The level that Newstart was at before COVID was simply inhumane. Yeah, we're know. 25 years old, I think. It's 25 years it hadn't been raised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where you've got people who simply can't afford the basics in life. That, mm. That's not a proper social safety mm-hmm. net, which is what payments like Newstart and the disability support pension are supposed mm. to be. Mm. Uh, I just heard a story on radio this morning with a lady talking about how her life had changed since what's now JobSeeker mm. had increased. Mm. She said she'd been able to... It was very basic stuff. She said, I was able to buy myself new underwear for the first time in years. The doctor did my shoulder checked out for the first time in six years. I mean, to have someone describe that personal experience tells you that where Newstart was before was simply inhumane. It wasn't reasonable. And we do need to raise the rate. On the issue of housing affordability, we need to look at housing affordability, not just in the upfront cost, but also in the running cost of a property. And that goes to some of the environmental issues. It goes to quality of life issues. Having a well-insulated home with efficient devices where your energy bills can be literally thousands of dollars a year cheaper is actually an important part of housing affordability. We take a very clear view that housing first is a policy principle we work on. If you've got somewhere safe and secure to live, no matter what else is going on in your life, you've got that basic foundation that can then help you tackle whether it's unemployment, um, a mental health issue, a drug and alcohol addiction mm-hmm. issue, um, issues of family violence, all those other problems that are drivers of homelessness. If you've got somewhere secure to live, mm-hmm. you've got a much better chance of tackling those other challenges mm-hmm. in your life. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly the point we're touching on before. Like what they've done in some cities in the US is actually create tiny home communities mm-hmm. for vulnerable people to give them that step back up in, you know, and a lot of these people have been homeless for a very, very long time, which has impacted their ability to do everything else that you've mentioned. Mm. And just having that safe place, having a community that feels safe and welcoming has enabled them to return to the workforce, has enabled them to get clean, has enabled them to get healthy. Um, you know, so it's, it's like I said, the, the housing piece is so important. If we don't feel safe. It's very hard to move forward. Yeah, in my role as Minister for Justice and Corrections, one of the things we've started to do is to build a justice housing portfolio so that we've got the capability for people to not end up in jail. Mm. We do get some people who are held on remand because they can't get bail because they've got nowhere to go. They can't give an address to the magistrate. Mm. And so making sure we've got things like bail hostels for some people where they've been involved in family violence or other matter, Uh, but also then we've had people who've not been able to get parole because they haven't got a secure address to go to. So we're looking at solving those sort of issues. There's a great example here in Canberra called Common Ground. And we built the first one when I was housing minister back in 2013-14. And it's a great role because it is that housing first principle. And it's people who've literally been living on the street, being somewhere, given somewhere not just uh, warm to live, but somewhere that is theirs to stay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that human piece again. It's yeah, letting there. them be humans. It's not a short-term crisis accommodation. It's like yeah. you stay as long as you need to. Oh. What we do find is that a lot of people come to common ground, they get stable and get secure and they move on. Mm-hmm. They're then able to hold down a, mm-hmm. a private rental or whatever their arrangement becomes, mm-hmm. but that security gives them the foundation to build from. Mm-hmm. And is that something potentially that can give them a reference to to become a renter in the regular housing market? Because, you know, a lot of the barriers that people are facing, it's not just economics, right? Like it's mm-hmm. such a competitive market because there's low housing stock. Maybe slightly different during COVID with a lot of, you know, rentals opening up because of the situation but you know 
when I moved here from Canada, um, you know, I was a very attractive candidate to rent a place, but it was still, you know, very, very difficult. There was a lot of people who wanted um, the same thing and who were in much better positions, who were couples, who had higher incomes, who had a history of working in Canberra, and I'm this unknown from overseas. So, um, you know, like, if I was finding it difficult, how would someone who's coming, you know, coming out on parole, coming out through um, recovering from a mental health um, program, something mm. that would give them a black mark against their name for, you know, for yeah. argument's sake. It's a really good point, and that competitive in the rental competitiveness in the rental market creates other problems. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that there are minimum energy performance standards mm-hmm. for rental properties, because th- there are too many rental properties in Canberra that are zero star rated. Mm-hmm. Frankly, they're freezing cold in winter, they're hot in summer, they have big energy bills, and they're just not comfortable to live in. But if you turn up to a house, and there's twenty or thirty people there in- making the inspection, mm-hmm. you go, oh, well not a very good energy rating they'll just go we'll just give it to the next person so there's no ability for people to ignore so we that's one of those market failures i was talking talking about before there's a role for government to step in and say if you're going to rent a house out you must provide a house that's at least got these energy performance standards so it's a decent place for somewhere to live because in the market you're talking about people can't walk away from the crap ones and that's the truth. You know, the most people who are on a lower income bracket are the ones that can't afford the things that are cost reducing, right? They can't afford to install the solar because um, they're renters. Well, I mean, Scotty could tell you about a great scheme for people who are renters who can install solar, but we'll get back to that one later. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's so many more barriers to making it affordable. You, yeah. just, you just don't have um, the foundational pieces in place when you're coming from that lower income earning bracket. No, I think that's right. I, um, I, because of the fields I work in, I've spoken to people who spend $500 a year on electricity and I've spoken to people who spend $8,000 a year on electricity mm. and almost without doubt the people spending $8,000 a year on electricity can't really afford to um, mm. and the people spending 500 bucks have, you know, put a bit of upfront cash mm-hmm. into whatever they needed to do to fix up the problems. Um, so you do get these odd situations and I think that there are roles for communities to step in and for individuals to rethink lifestyles and there are roles for government to step in and make things better and I think making those changes easier, making the information easier and providing subsidies is a really good role for government mm-hmm. and that's I've seen some good stuff come through the AxSmart program. That's really, really great. I've seen a lot of great information and, look, we, we're rolling out programs that help. The Greens have put up a lot of environmental programs that help. Mm-hmm. I come at it from an environmentalist. I want everybody uh, having a lower environmental footprint, <laughs> but it actually, mm-hmm. again, you get the same solution that fixes multiple problems. It'll also reduce your costs. Mm. And looking at one of the um, projects you talked about recently, Shane, was the Canberra Hospital expansion. Oh, yeah. Well, I was very excited when I was reading about that. The stats, like um, I, I did write them down. Now, of course, I can't find them. But it was something to the effect of the, the whole cost of the expansion to convert this um, into renewable electricity mm. is like 0.5% of the whole cost or something yeah. minuscule like that. And this is clean energy. This is a model we could be using for our public buildings. No, it's great memories <laughs> of the facts there. But yeah, the new Canberra Hospital expansion, which is going to be the new emergency department, mm. it's a project that will cost more than $600 million. But we've, mm. through careful work, we've made sure it will be an all-electric hospital facility. Mm. Traditionally, a big structure like this would have had a gas-fired turbine in the basement, a gas-fired heating and cooling system, uh, and therefore an ongoing source of greenhouse gas emissions. As part of the ACT's push to get to zero emissions, policy now is that new government buildings, where possible, should be all electric. 
Now, when we first started discussing the hospital expansion, mm-hmm. the initial reaction was, oh, we can't do that. It'll be terribly expensive. But over the course of 12 or 18 months of researching and planning as the, the development's gone on, mm-hmm. yes, we've got it in that mm-hmm. on a project that's more than $600 million, there'll be only $1.4 million extra up front mm-hmm. to go all electric. And as you said, less than mm-hmm. half a percent mm-hmm. of the project costs. So we're not only getting a great environmental outcome, we're doing it in a way that is affordable. Mm-hmm. And we're setting a new standard. Mm-hmm. Canberra is at the forefront of doing these things. Mm-hmm. There's no other hospital project like this in Australia. Mm-hmm. And we've actually not, in the research we've done so far, identified mm-hmm. one anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're really pushing the envelope here mm-hmm. to show that a clean, green future is possible, a zero-carbon future mm-hmm. is possible. Mm-hmm. You just have to take a bit more time and effort up front mm-hmm. uh, and not even that much more money. And is this involving the model of storing energy in batteries, like taking it, um, the energy into batteries in the hospital? I'm not quite, I don't really quite understand the, no. the whole green energy process, so if I'm asking silly questions, you no, can not at all. correct no. me there. It's a, this, this project is about making sure that the, power just, uh, the hospital sorry, just runs on electricity, not yeah. gas. Okay. So it hasn't got a storage component, mm-hmm. but... This week we've announced the ACT is getting its first big batteries. Okay, that's what I got confused. It's probably where you put yeah, yeah, there's some big batteries coming Two slightly different projects, but yeah. we've commissioned a couple of large-scale batteries for the ACT on a similar scale to what we saw in South Australia. And for anyone who's followed that one, the South Australian one's been very, very successful. Uh, it's not only provided strength to the South Australian electricity grid, it's proved to be very economic. It's provided a whole lot of what are called ancillary services. Mm-hmm. So as you get more wind and solar into the system, mm-hmm. you've, you've got to do things like frequency control mm-hmm. and make sure the grid is just stable. Mm-hmm. It's possible to do that. Mm-hmm. And batteries provide those services mm-hmm. as well. And so what it also mm-hmm. means is where we've got those batteries, one of them that we're putting in will power up to 15,000 homes for up to an hour in the end, event of a blackout. Mm-hmm. So instead of needing to put in more wires and invest in all that network infrastructure, the battery will play that role and so it will actually save money for the system mm-hmm. as well. And what sort of life these batteries have? Like how, how long would the installation um, last before it maybe needs to be um, improved? Or um, maybe I'm not using the right language here. You know, no, these no, things yeah. have, have a lifespan. So. Yeah, look, that, that technology is changing all the time yeah. um, and that's been an issue around even the hybrid vehicles that people have driven. They're worried about the batteries running out. The battery technology is both improving very, very rapidly and coming down in cost. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're seeing electric vehicles become cheaper all the mm-hmm. time. Uh, and so, again, mm-hmm. that's part of that changeover process. Mm-hmm. What, what we're finding with a lot of these things is the really clever small-scale industries and the technology is keeping pace and slightly overshooting where we need to be in the community. Mm. So people were worried for a long time about EVs, batteries, Mm. what's going to happen to them at the end of their lives. Mm. What's happening in other countries is those EV batteries that are, you know, you get to the end of 12, Mm. 15 years, maybe 10 years, it's no longer powerful enough to run a car. You can then put it on your house and that Mm. becomes the house battery. And then there's a recycling industry. And I've got a lot of mates who've got EVs and they've this uh, factory in Melbourne now that is set up to recycle those EV batteries once they've been through that whole chain of being used in a car mm-hmm. and then maybe being used for a secondary purpose and then they need to be recycled. Mm-hmm. And I, I, because I come from the recycling industry, I'm pretty confident with a little bit of help, yeah. that's what's going to happen. Yeah. We get these new industries, some of them maybe need a bit of government stimulus, some of them are just going to pop up all by themselves like fungi overnight mm-hmm. and they'll take care of that. So we obviously need to think about it and yeah. plan for it, but it's actually, it's one of those problems that seems like a big problem, but actually... 
solves itself mm. quite easily mm. and makes jobs and makes a new industry as it does. Well, this is what I love about your platform. It's all about valuing and cycling resources, right? Mm. This yeah. is the whole concept. It's, yeah. it's sustainable within itself. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's in recycling, we call it the circular economy. Um, in farming, you call it regenerative agriculture. And in economics, you call it, you know, donut economics or... Yeah. Pyramid economics or whatever you like, it's actually the same idea yeah. in all of those fields. And I suspect every single industry has this same modern concept of mm-hmm. how do we make how do we make the things we need mm-hmm. whilst looking after the planet that produces them at the same time? And it's all about circularity rather than that linear make line go up, line fall off. Yeah. Um, now, um, you mentioned before, Shane, uh, inspiration and, and looking to the overseas sort of uh, examples. Now, our mainstream media doesn't have any of those examples. They have death and destruction and the worst of humanity, followed by a cute puppy. <laughs> now, how, I mean, you've managed to get the inspiration by looking around, but how do we get these these positive stories of so many things? Like, on this show, we... We, there's no way we're going to cover all the cool things going on just in Canberra. Mm-hmm. Um, the sea change has brought out a new map of um, all the good things going on, and it's massive. It's really hard to look at because there's just so much on it. Um, how do we get that into the general community, this news, this this information about all the inspiring cool things that are going on? And, and how, like, you're obviously trying to do it. What's your experience of trying to get it through in the mainstream media? Oh, look, it is tough. The mainstream media are always looking at where the controversy is, where's the fight, where's the difference, rather than uh, where is the common ground and where are the opportunities. And that that is very frustrating. You know, there's a lot of talk about the evils of social media, but there's also a lot of positives in social media. And one of the things I love about that is it gets past those filters and you are finding that people who want to do those things can find a community of interest. They can actually connect. They can share ideas and we're, you know, everyone listening to this program will be part of one of those groups, whether it's a some sort of community gardening group or we've got the, the Buy Nothing groups all through Canberra. You know, those things are happening. And I, I think we underestimate how much the community loves these things. I think mainstream politics does underestimate that a little bit. And I think there's a really good groundswell of it out there. I know that even with my passion for these things and the fact that in my job I get to meet a lot of people who are doing these things, there's still tons more things happening that I don't even know about. And my advice always to people is when they say, how can I make a difference? I say, make a difference in the way you can. Mm. Now, that might be being involved in a volunteer organisation. It might be becoming the person in your workplace mm. who says, hey, we don't have a recycling system at work. Let's get one going. Mm. We don't have a composting system in our office and yet we send out all these scraps every week. Let's sign up to some composting mm. system. Everybody can be an activist. Mm. Everyone can make a difference. And these days there's always someone else out there who wants to do it with you if you're looking for a, you know, some people to team up with. Yeah, and I guess on, on that note, I mean, going back to what we were talking about with how the, you know, if that base is getting shaky and everything's starting to, to loosen up and maybe fall apart in a decline, like you said, you know, the Roman Empire declined, I think we're declining, and peak oil is certainly going to be a decline which will, which will really affect how we do things. Uh, you, you covered the sort of democracy aspect of, of how we get people involved in, in doing things, but what about the physical reality, the, 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 the food systems, the, the, the toilet paper? Um, <laughs> Back to how, the biggest crisis of 2020. Yeah, yeah, how do we get com- community set up so that it can provide for itself, essentially? Look, I think there's a lot of scope for doing things differently. Um, Certainly when it comes to food, we can produce a lot more food within the urban fabric of Canberra. 
Yeah, we got lots of spaces. So when I had the city services portfolio, we gave the land to the Lynham, uh, the Lynham Orchard Group. Mm-hmm. Your Commons, yeah. Lynham Commons, thank yep. you. I knew I hadn't come out with the right term there, but <laughs> you know, that was just a piece of grass <laughs> that the city services team had to mow once every four or six weeks, and now it's turned into something terrific that not only is creating food, it's creating community connection, knowledge sharing. Uh, one of the best parts of my job is we give out a set of community garden grants. And it comes back to your earlier point about the generations as well. Uh, those community garden grants, we started giving them to body corporates. So people in apartment blocks could do them. And you know, often the apartment blocks don't have a great connection. And what we found with those is that uh, people come together around the community garden. The older people often have the knowledge and the young people can literally do the hard physical labour. And you get great teaming up going. You're sharing the knowledge, getting the work done. That sort of cooperative effort... Uh, I think is a key to breaking down some of the less desirable parts of our life, our modern life, mm. and finding connection, finding sustainable ways of doing things, mm. uh, getting more joy in our lives. Yeah. Mm. Food, food is a really interesting one. We've got such an opaque relationship with what we eat now, and I sort of became quite aware of this on the Carbon Diet. I asked supermarkets which bits of their products flew and none of them could tell me. I asked, you know, which, which items are being grown in, in energy-intense hothouses and which aren't, they don't know or won't mm-hmm. say. There's, there's a massive amount of waste and poor production in that system and then there's a massive amount of waste past that end. We know that a third of the food we're producing is going to landfill which is ridiculous with, you know, we're going to put a stop to that. That's not right. So I think it's, it's a really good example of one of the ones where you can look at it. You'll probably cut the impact in half by changing what you already have. And then you can start the new ideas and cut the impact again. So it's a food is a food is interesting. I think because governments traditionally have been a bit nervous of interfering in that area and I think it is time for everybody to be a bit more involved in how their food gets made and exactly what the impact of it is. Yeah well I know there's a lot of new initiatives coming up in Canberra there's a the Inner North Urban Farming Group there's something similar going on in Tuggeranong there's a new Co-Canberra is working on a a new regional um, community owned farming scheme there's there's heaps of stuff going on in Canberra so Mm -hmm. I think the RDA is onto it as well they are onto it yeah yeah. they're doing some really interesting work they were going to have a great conference on urban agriculture (laughs) earlier this year and that became one of the casualties of the pandemic but Mm -hmm. there's definitely a groundswell out there and certainly here in Canberra you know the city farm has been such a tremendous success I think a lot of people have found that very inspiring and got a lot of knowledge from it that has left them feeling empowered to do more So we're getting close to the end of our time here. I just, the show is about motivations and vision. Is there one particular vision that you and Shane, you and Joe, would like to share with us before we sign off something that is your ideal or your goal? I mean, you've shared a lot of those already, but is there something that's really close to your heart? I guess as an environmentalist, I've always been driven by that idea of the next generation, mm-hmm. of handing something on, actually handing on something that's better than what we inherited, not worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, that idea that we are custodians, not just consumers. Uh, that's really what drives me. And now that manifests itself in many, many different ways. But that, I think, is, a, for me, a, a, I guess, a central value. Yeah, yeah that's, that's my same vision, really. I, I want to have a world where my six-year-old doesn't have to skip school to go on a strike. Um, you know, I'm an optimist. I'm hoping she might bunk off school for other reasons at some point in the next decade. She might say, okay, it's all right. You've got a handle on it now, guys. Just keep the lid on it and I'll take over shortly. 
No, that's fantastic. You know, it's, it's been such a pleasure having you both on here. And, you know, we've really tried to um, use the radio show as a platform for the parties that don't have the huge amounts of funding behind them that get them a lot more exposure on the media. So um, I'm glad you could both make it. And it's been really, for me, just um, exciting to hear about the potential that we have for the future and to have, you know, different voices speaking for our communities that really are human beings and that care about where we're coming from. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Scotty? Oh, no, no, I mean... No, not really, no, no. I think we've covered a fair yeah, bit. I mean, yeah. this, as we've usual, got, we've got yeah. through 20% of our 20, questions. Yeah, exactly. There's you know? another 20 pages of I was thinking yeah. that thing. We really appreciated coming on. It's been great to have, you know, what's been a really broad-ranging conversation. Yeah. I think what it's touched on is there are so many more things to be done uh, and how much activity is happening in the community that, you know, is out there to be tapped into. I think people know a lot of the answers. The job is to break through into the political space and actually deliver those answers that a lot of people already know about mm. and i guess the one thing i would add is that if you've enjoyed this conversation get onto the two double x website and support your local community radio where you hear things that you don't hear elsewhere two double xfm.org.au hit the support us and subscribe volunteer give us your money donate Send Be- us your music. Request your <laughs> estate to us. You can, you can do all sorts of things there. So, yeah. uh, well, a huge thank you to both of you for coming on. That was Minister Shane Rattenbury, ACT Greens member for Courageong, and Joe Clay, ACT Greens lead candidate for Ginandera, joining us this morning. Uh, next week, we're going to have Bethany Williams and Peter Swarbrick from the Canberra Progressives joining us. So don't forget to tune in if you'd like to hear more about what they've got to say. And you've been listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson with Behind the Lines on two. X Community Radio 98.3 FM. I'll leave you with a quick quote. If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more and become more, you are a leader. And that was John Quincy Adams.